This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. I wonder if it wouldn't be more edifying for us just to keep singing for another hour. That was good, brother. Thank you. Thank you, congregation. Thank you, accompanist. Rodney's aunt, I hear. Wonderful. Good to have this time with you all. I've already had a very warm welcome from Brother Holmes and from others here. Thank you so much for that. Let me just tell you what I'm hoping to do with these three lectures. Uh, Tonight I'm going to more topically approach the topic and try to approach the topic of conversion and do so negatively. I want to think about false conversions. And then tomorrow, if the Lord tarries and gives me life and we get the opportunity to meet, uh, I hope to look at two key passages in the New Testament. The conversion of Cornelius in Acts 10 and 11, and then the theology of conversion in the afternoon in Ephesians chapter 2. So that's my plan for our time together. If you have a non-Christian friend who's not working tomorrow, Invite him with you, because uh, I used to be an agnostic, became a Christian. I love explaining the gospel to people. I think Christianity is true. Uh, The friends I know who are atheists and agnostics simply do not understand the world correctly or as well as Christians do. And I think when we're on this topic of conversion, it's particularly helpful for non-Christians to hear and understand this. So get them to change their plans and come, either tomorrow morning at 10 or tomorrow afternoon at 3 They'd be most welcome. Right, but tonight, let's begin by opening God's word to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're thinking of false conversions. I'm not sure I know a better passage to go to than 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, And of a kind that does not occur even among pagans, a man has his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the flesh may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. And then something that Paul wrote toward the end of his ministry over in 1 Timothy chapter 4. When he's writing to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Just curious, if you're a pastor here tonight, would you just put up your hand for a second? Let's see. Yeah, I thought so. I'm talking to a lot of pastors. Okay. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. 
Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Brothers and sisters, I want us to consider the simple question tonight that introduces to us uh, the juncture of theology and church life. And especially does so with this issue of conversion. What are we to make of systems which seem to produce false converts? So much so that it's not just one man like this situation in Corinth that Paul writes about where they've, they've clearly tolerated wrongly this man who's in unrepentant sin, but whole congregations like Israel of old are typified and characterized not by holiness, but by worldliness. Do you see something of the dimensions of the problem? Let me mention four, briefly, four dimensions of this problem. It's a problem for all the individuals being deceived about their own state before the Lord. You notice here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, Paul gives one reason for urging the church to put this man out of their fellowship so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It is not loving or right for a congregation to leave men and women made in the image of God with the impression that they are reconciled to God when the truth is, other than some decision recorded in 1973, we have no evidence that they are. It is not loving to do that. I understand your neighbors around will think you're loving, but God knows the truth. And your desire for carnal comfort and lack of conflict does not honor the Lord, and it is not loving to that person that you are leaving in soul deception. One dimension of the problem for the individual being deceived. But second, it's also a problem for the church's internal love as a church because it's then hindered. What I mean is if the very nature of the congregation is affected by one unrepentant person left in membership, as Paul was talking about here in 1 Corinthians 5, that's just this one man left in sin like this. About He talks about a little yeast working through the whole batch of dough there in verse 6. What does that mean for so many of our churches? Where it's not just one person left in unrepentant sin, but many such persons. In fact, in some congregations, hundreds of them. How does that affect our lives together? Does it make it less loving? Does it make our churches less forgiving? Does it make them less joyful? Less hopeful? What toll does this take on its leaders? You know, in Hebrews 13, 17, the Christians are exhorted to make the task of the leaders a joy and not a burden. Pastors are used to dealing with sins. We deal with our own hearts. So we're well well familiar with sin. Most of us are married. We have families to shepherd. We have churches which are composed exclusively of sinners. So all our time is spent dealing with sinners. But, and that's even when we're alone, but congregations are to be composed of born-again sinners, repenting sinners. So when a congregation is comprised of many people whose lives more resemble uh, the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 than the fruit of the Spirit, well, then the experience of following Christ together, of love and encouragement and spurring one another on and mutual edification and accountability, all of this is, is cooled. It's diminished. The church becomes more like the world. So two dimensions of this problem. The individual's being deceived, the church's internal love being hindered. Third, this brings me to a third problem that's created by widespread, unconverted church members. And it's one which the people of Israel so ominously foreshadowed. The church's witness to the nations is subverted. 
The church's witness to the nations is subverted. It's not only a problem for us internally and how we experience the Christian life together, it's a problem for what God made us to do, to take it to the nations. We become so much like the world that they have no questions left they want to ask us. It appears we have no hope of a better, a more humane, a more God-honoring life to hold out to them. And the world is in the church. The church begins to disappear from the world. We are to be a light shining in the dark place, but if our words aren't true, or if they are but our lives don't back them up, then the very group meant by God to be beacons of hope and life, the very group is dimmed. The way to God seems to disappear. Hope vanishes. If you're always around Christians, you may not realize this, but I live on Capitol Hill. I, I, except for members of my church, I know few Christians there. People are pagans. Uh, and I got to tell you, they have terrible lives. They're rich. They're well-educated. Uh, they can be good conversationalists. But I remember one man uh, meeting up with me soon after I'd gotten there. Wanted to have breakfast. We got breakfast. This man had been in several presidential administrations. He'd started a number of corporations. He was a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. And he just looked at me and said, Mark, I would give anything in the world to have the kind of faith you have. He knew how hollow a life of power and a life of wealth is. When you have everything the world lyingly tells you you want and you should live for, then the truth begins to ring out that you are actually made in the image of God. And until you find God, you will not know why you're alive. Worst of all, number four, God's name is defamed. God's name is defamed. Ultimately, the reason God says set apart a people for himself is for his own glory. But now what was designed to be for his praise actually ends up, as he says in Ezekiel, being grounds for his name to be profaned or blasphemed. I've always been struck by how Paul deals with the Corinthian church over their disunity and divisiveness. You turn back a couple of chapters to the first chapter in chapter 1. He asks this penetrating question in verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13. Is Christ divided? Now, pastors, I, I, if, if you're being honest tonight, is there one of us here that is so theological? When you hear Brother Jones is gossiping about, you know, Brother Smith, that your immediate response is not to try to think practically how do I deal with this, but... Is Christ divided? I, I don't think any of us are that godly. I don't think any of us are that biblically minded. I'm struck by the way Paul, dealing with his church, full of problems. I mean, the people from Chloe's household told him. I mean, he knows the whole gossip train. He knows how it got to him. He knows all the stuff. But Paul, profoundly, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, recognizes this is an ontological challenge to what the church is because he says how contradictory this is to the reality if this is truly a church because is Christ divided? The, the theological assumption behind that is that the church is expressing Christ. The, the local church is to reflect the truth about God. So how can this Corinthian church reflect the truth about Christ when it is unlike Christ, when it is divided? He goes on and pursues this church about whether its holiness is reflecting God's holiness and whether its love is reflecting God's love. Our churches are to reflect God's character so that he will be brought glory in all the nations. Now, that's what the church is about. That's always been his plan. This is what he has done and is doing and will do, but we work against him when we build churches that camouflage his character rather than display it. Our lives and the life of our congregation together is not to slander the character of God, but to reflect it and so bring glory and praise to God. False conversions obscure God's plan because they obscure God's nature. So, 
so much for the dimensions of the problem. I think it is a serious problem when our churches are regularly characterized by members who think they are Christians when they're not. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I think it's great when our churches have a lot of non-Christians in them in the sense of they attend. So most Sundays at our church, I'll have people on the way out identify themselves not as a Christian. I'm a Muslim. I'm a Hindu. We've got one Hindu woman attending right now who has been coming to everything, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, asking questions about Jesus. You know, So I love people like that. But what I, I, what I don't want, for anybody's sake, are people thinking they're Christians when they're not. That is not helpful to anybody. So, what is the, the source of this problem? There are large numbers of people, often dominant numbers of people in too many congregations, I think it's fair to say, who do not evidence the fruit of the Spirit, who do not seem to be born again. I think we just have to frankly imagine that, or admit that. But my question for us tonight is, how does that happen? What are we doing? What, what do we do that would help to create such false conversions? Well, more practically, I'll probably talk about this some in the Nine Marks workshop up at First Baptist Lindale on Wednesday, Lord willing. But I think just briefly to talk about this right now, I think in many cases the problem must be us. There's not something wrong in the culture out there. No, there's a problem with us. And, and that's why I'm bringing this message to us, uh, especially brother pastors, uh, in a lecture like this, in a seminary like this. Because, friends, the role of the pastor, the teacher, is crucial in the local church. We see this in all the warnings about false teachers in the New Testament. So Paul warned Timothy to have nothing to do with godless, godless myths he warned of false teachers that were to come among them that would deceive many. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of, of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. That's 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. Peter warned the Christians that he was writing to in 2 Peter chapter 2. There were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Yes, I'm a preacher. Yes, I spent my afternoon today in a bookstore. Yes, I was in half-priced books. Yes, I was in the religious section. Yes, I mourned over how many T.D. Jakes and Joyce Myers books there were. Just mourned. Mourned. It's not that either one of those two people never says anything true. They do say true things. I've heard Benny Hinn on YouTube defend the substitutionary atonement. My problem is not with the truth they speak. It's with the falsehood they speak. Friends, we have to realize that false teachers are a real thing. John could refer to those who are trying to lead you astray. 1 John chapter 2. That's why John told the Christians that he was writing to, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And in this warning, Peter and John are just reflecting what our Lord Jesus taught very clearly in his first recorded sermon in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus warned his followers. In the same chapter where he says, judge not, he then goes on and tells them how they are to judge. And they're especially to judge those people who come looking like sheep, but eating like wolves. Brother pastors, we see why our role is so important. If God has this grand plan, and if his people are such a crucial part of it, and if we, pastors, are so significant in that, then you understand why we teachers have such a great responsibility, and we will be accountable to God for this responsibility. That's why we read in James chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And so we read in Hebrews 13, 17, that church leaders must give an account to God. It's a good reason to drop out of seminary. Some of you all may be here rather lightly at seminary. Read James 3, 1. Read Hebrews 13, 17. Think carefully. A good way to summarize the pastor's role is that verse I read in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Watch your life 
and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Note what Paul says about life and doctrine. I think we can go wrong in in either of these ways. And just a side note, in order to prepare this message, I walked through the scriptures, especially the New Testament, to consider what each book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, would have to say about this topic. And what we see can be nicely summarized, I think, in these two categories of life and doctrine. Life and doctrine. So let me take doctrine first, all right? First, because in our experience, that sets the tone for our lives. Doctrine comes first, and that informs how we live. So we can teach the wrong things with disastrous results. We know that saving faith comes only by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So false teaching will bring false converts. Think of what was going on in the Galatian churches that Paul wrote to. So as I looked through the New Testament... I was noting down every verse that had to do with these topics, and I grouped them under five truths, five truths that were especially liable to be distorted then and which still are today. So if we would preserve God's church for the purposes for which Christ established it, we pastors should especially guard these always attacked, closely related truths. Truth number one, God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming. 2 Peter chapter 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Friends, if we deny or even ignore God's role as our creator, as king and judge of this world, then people will follow their own evil desires. You can easily fill a church with people for one reason or another if you ignore or even deny this truth. But beware of this temptation. Avoiding talking about the doctrine of hell is one step away from denying it altogether. So there was a a good apologetic book that people were talking about. It was the new kind of mere Christianity that came out a number of years ago. I looked through it. There was no treatment of hell, and I was immediately suspicious of it. I've never recommended it once to a non-Christian friend. A lot of good stuff in that book. But when you avoid the doctrine of hell, you're one step away from denying it altogether. But when you get this right, that there really is a God who really will judge us, then there is an appropriate care and humility that begins to characterize the congregation's life together. As we realize the brevity of life and the certainty of judgment, we feel ourselves to be more objects of mercy than judges, more pilgrims than settlers, more stewards than owners. It's healthy for us to understand this. Truth number two, we have to be clear on in our preaching and teaching. We should be judged by God. Not only is there a judgment coming, startling truth that that may be, but it's good and right that it's coming. It's not a form of the problem of evil. Oh no, how could God be mean? Oh no, no. God is good. and He would be wrong not to judge us. We, as we just heard from that confession, are lost, depraved, under the good, right, fearful, certain judgment of God. So friends, this is like the first truth I mentioned, God's judgment is coming, but it's pressing in a little bit more. So in our churches, we shouldn't merely teach that there is a judgment out there somewhere for someone. God's going to judge those bad people out there. No, we should feel our own helplessness. One of the saddest comments I get from members of our church when they've been on vacation, they get back and they talk to me on the door on the way out after church is, It's so good to be in a church where I heard the gospel again. Brother, pastor, why would you ever bother meeting on the Lord's Day and not preaching the good news of Jesus Christ? That's not in case Aunt Sally's not a Christian. It's because every person sitting there needs to be reminded that our only hope is that amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
There's no room for self-righteousness among Christians. Our atheist friends can mistakenly feel a little self-content, you know, consistent with their own worldview, their own goodness. But of all people, humility should mark the Christian in this world. We must be clear not simply just that judgment exists, that, but that it exists because God is good and we are not. We deserve God's judgment. As Paul argues in Romans 1 to 3, we know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. And in chapter 3 that we read earlier, we know that that's that's all of us. I, I think one especially important part of depravity for pastors to consider when we consider conversion is our natural state spiritually. Brother, I'm so glad you decided to read the article 3 that you read there. We must understand and teach in our pulpits that part of our lostness means that all people have a natural indisposition toward believing our message. Men love darkness instead of light. By knowing and teaching this, we protect ourselves from the mistake of thinking that we can get more conversions by changing the message. How many churches seem to downplay, if not deny, Natural human depravity and lostness. Those who, as John puts it, are from the world, 1 John 4, will not accept the true gospel. Any gospel they would accept would only be because there's been a change, not of them, but of the message that we preach. But when you get this right, that there is a judgment coming because God is good and we are not, then you protect the church against those converts who are offended at the idea that they have done anything wrong, let alone anything so wrong as that God should judge them for it. Imagine how that more general humility, as we consider the judgment of God, is increased when we consider more particularly that we deserve that judgment. You know, one thing we do every Sunday morning when we gather, we pray. A lot of churches today don't pray. I mean, as the minister of music opens the hymn, they'll be, Lord Jesus, we thank you we're here today. Turn to hymn number 353. There'll be things like that. But usually, if, if you want to hear prayer in a church today, you need to go to a Roman Catholic church. Evangelical churches don't pray anymore, not in public. Maybe at a prayer meeting that 15 people come to, but I mean, not, not in the public. It takes up too much time. Well, brother pastors, I would just exhort you to pray. Do it out loud in public, where everybody can see you and hear you. You know, pray. give a long intercessory prayer. We have a five or ten minute pastoral prayer. Right in the middle of the morning service, taking up everybody's time. You know? Just spend so long talking to God on Sunday morning that the people who only pretend to know him are bored by it. We'll spend five or ten minutes praising God with a prayer of praise. We'll spend five or ten minutes confessing our sins. Because we want to make it clear that God actually speaks the truth. Homo legeo. We say the same thing that God says about our sin. He is right in his condemnation of us. Our general sense of God's grace becomes then a keen sense of God's mercy that we need, but that we ourselves have never deserved, but which has been deserved for us. Oh, you see how sweet that is. Oh, Christianity becomes then the most beautiful, romantic, love song you ever imagined. I remember one membership interview. I was talking to this young man about our statement of faith. Because when you join our church, you, you go through some classes, then you have a meeting with the elders. And back then, when I first got there, the church was very small. I did all the membership interviews. And this guy was meeting with me. And, and he didn't like the either clear statement or implication of the fact that we thought the Bible taught that judgment is everlasting. He liked the idea of annihilation. That is, you either cease to exist if you're not a Christian when you die, or at least there's some limited time that you're punished and then you're exterminated. And I understood why that was attractive to him in a worldly sense. I, I get it. I, man, I'm, I'm right. You know, eternity of sin, it seems it, it's challenging to us. Eternity of punishment is challenging to us to consider. Um, I, I could give a defense for it. That's another talk. Um, but I said to him, well, friend, we just need to stop your membership interview right here because we as a church believe this. We think the Bible teaches this. 
And if you join this church, then you are saying you believe this too, and you will teach this and defend this. So I don't think you have to agree with us in, on this in order to be a Christian, but it's, it's not a stable position to not believe this. So I said, listen, why don't, why don't I just suggest a couple of sermons by Jonathan Edwards? You can go away and read, you know. Stare at Matthew 24 and 25 a little bit, you know, and then come back and talk to me. Let's see what happens. So this guy went away. He read these sermons. He studied Matthew 24 and 25, other places in Scripture. And after a couple of weeks, he came back to me and he said, Mark, I got to tell you, I was wrong. I was just using my general sense of justice. I was not carefully studying scripture. It is very clear in scripture. And he said, I have to tell you also that since I've understood that, Sundays have become so sweet to me, especially whenever we talk of the atonement, because I understand more what Jesus did, the magnitude of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, friends, what's happening there? A pastor is helping to shepherd the flock wisely. We're being careful. We're slowing things down. We're getting the sheep to think a little bit more. We're trying to pick the ticks off them before they get in the flock. You know, we're, we're trying to help them out because that's what pastors are called to do. So that's all from truth number two. We should be judged by God. Truth number three, our only hope is in Christ. Our only hope is in Christ. We must make it very clear in our teaching that we are to trust not in what we are or what we have done, but in who Jesus Christ is and in what he has done. In his substitutionary death and justifying resurrection, Romans 4.25, as the incarnate son of God becoming a substitute in our place and the first fruits of the final resurrection. So any idea that some preachers would teach that people are converted through our own works must be rejected. That's why I hope you are doing something this month to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I love Martin Luther. He got a lot of things wrong. If you ever read his commentaries, he got a lot of things wrong. But man, he got some things right by the grace of God. And this is one of them. He understood clearly that if we are converted, if we are saved, it is not ultimately because of anything in us. But it is because only of the grace of God. You pastors, use this anniversary to make that big and clear to your people. If you were not planning on doing something special the last weekend of this month, do something special the last weekend of this month. But Mark, didn't the magisterial reformers drown the Anabaptists? Yes, they did. And they're going to have to give account to that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the gospel that they got right and clear on this point. And we should... We should use that. Which group of Christians is there we don't have to pick through the bones in order to get the good meat? How on earth do our African-American brothers and sisters ever even worship with us, given the way we have treated them over the last 300 years? That is the grace and mercy of God. So, friends, I think as, as white Christians, those of us here who are white, we, we should get used to what our African-American brothers and sisters could well instruct us in, which is finding goodness and grace in people that there are a lot of problems with. So... Martin Luther, I commend him to you sufficiently. Our only hope is in Christ. So preach Romans 1 through 3. That by itself clearly destroys any idea that we have anything to do with saving ourselves. For Christ to be our hope, we must confess Jesus to be the Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And we must be clear in our preaching not only about the person of Christ, who he is, but about the work of Christ. You think of 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we have to be clear in our teaching over against theological liberalism that any denial of the bodily resurrection of Christ is, according to the Bible, a denial of Christ himself. What else is Paul's majestic chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians about that so many of us preach on? We must teach and preach clearly Christ, who Christ is, what Christ has done, how he is our only hope. Without this being clear, you can make converts to fatalism or an ethical society or a, a positive thinking seminar that masquerades as a church. 
But you cannot have a truly Christian church. But when you get this right, then you begin offending all the right people and attracting all the right people. The self-righteous, the wrongly self-confident are offended at such talk of a savior. But those who know themselves to be sinners in desperate need of a savior hear the news and they rejoice. Only true converts finally respond to the truth about Jesus Christ. Truth number four. We don't see the fulfillness, uh, the fullness rather of salvation in this life. That's my bone to pick with Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes, Joel Osteen, the long line of people on TBN. What I mean is that Christ's death and resurrection secure for us forgiveness and reconciliation with God ultimately and his sustaining spirit until then. So it is an error to teach that following Jesus is mainly for present this life benefits. Two weeks ago, T.D. Jakes tweeted out, If you believe in God, you never need to spend another day in your life broke. That's a lie from hell. That is not a faithful shepherd. You're going to take your weakest people, most carnally minded, and they are going to go for that like that's Christianity. When that is not even a decent substitute for Christianity. That would make nonsense of the great examples of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. We need to see like them that we are aliens and strangers on this earth. That we are looking for a country of their own, longing for a better country, not the United States of America. But the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 16, a heavenly one. That's the country Christians are looking for. And we, the true Christians, have always been looking for that country. We never mistook it to be this country or whatever country our ancestors came from. Any authentic version of Christianity includes the fact that we are all waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. We agree with Paul when he wrote that if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. You realize why he's saying that? Because his experience in this life was not one of walking in victory. Beat up, thrown out, thrown in jail, eventually beheaded. Well, what about the promises of Jesus? All true. He'd do it all again, I'm sure. He had what was far more valuable. Friends, our, our secular friends that look so confident, pity them. In compassion, love them. They're trying to operate without, the full, without a full deck of knowing what God is like, how really good he is, how holy he is, how loving he is, how merciful he is. I remember another Hindu friend 15 years ago who came to Christ in our church. A member of his family was offended at his wife, so he tried to get more religious. He tried to dig into Hinduism to find resources on forgiveness. But what he found from his father, a very devout Hindu, and talking to other Hindus, there were no resources on forgiveness. It's not what Hinduism is about. It's about karma and things coming around that should be coming around. What they don't have is a savior. They don't have Jesus. Friends, Christianity is a wonderfully true thing. You consider those earthly trials of those saints in Hebrews 11. How many people would want to join them? Look at what's going on. Let's let's hear the prosperity preachers preach on these people. But how many people have been told that they're Christians when all they've been led to understand is that Jesus will help them reach their full potential in this life? What a sorry excuse for the Christian gospel. Read Robert Jones and Charles Woodbridge's book, Health, and Wealth, Health, Wealth, and Happiness. Wonderful taking apart of the Jones and Woodbridge, Health, Wealth, and Happiness. Wonderful book on that. My friends, even the carnally-minded person can understand the desire to better their own life or to live the lives of others. Vast crowds can be assembled who want meaning and purpose in their lives. So I read Purpose Driven Life when it was so popular 20 years ago. I understand, and I have no surprise at all, that people were converted through reading that book. God is sovereign. He used Balaam and Balaam's donkey, right? I'm never surprised when God uses me or anybody because he's God. He can do that. It's never an argument for the goodness of the thing itself. But friend, if you read even that book, and I want to be very clear, I think Rick Warren is my brother in Christ. 
I think we have very similar theology. I think we work it out pretty differently. But in that book, he specifically, again and again, talks about the key thing about wanting purpose. As if by that, that's his shorthand way of saying repenting and believing. But I just have to say, with all due respect, I think that's an insufficient stand-in for repent and believe. I think there are a lot of secular people who want purpose in their life, and I fear they can read that book and think, oh, I must be okay with God because I really want purpose in my life. Yeah, you're going to hell because the purpose in your life you want is to serve yourself. Your only hope is to realize that and realize there is a good God who has loved us in an unbelievable way in sending his only son to die in our steads. Friends, you need a big gospel like that in your pulpit. You need to make it clear to people that we do not see the fullness of salvation in this life. And brother pastors, when you do get this right in your own head, in your own heart, personally, and in your own teaching publicly, then you prepare the ground to live fearing God more than fearing the king's anger, accepting disgrace for the sake of Christ, seeing him as worth more than all earthly treasure, trusting in God's commands, even when they would seem to jeopardize your hopes in this life. How powerful an engine of building up and encouraging self-sacrifice is a church where Christ is prized above all. Where Paul can be beheaded and know that that in no way tells against the truth of the gospel that he was preaching. Because the one he's following was executed by the state. Jesus. He never used Christianity as a powerful self-help way to have a better life in this world. That's just not ever what it was. Number five, truth number five. We have to know and teach clearly that we can deceive ourselves and others about our relationship with God. If we would prevent our churches being characterized by an unconverted worldliness, then we must be clear in our teachings that we can deceive ourselves. The idea that being a Christian is always immediately self-evident, that there is no self-deception, is a false and a dangerous idea. Getting this wrong is what helps to populate our churches with those who are still spiritually dead. The spiritually dead can respond to and be interested in all kinds of things the church can do. And the more programs you have going on to get the people coming from the neighborhood, the more you're going to find there are going to be reasons they like being there. You know, we try to keep our church boring except for Jesus. You know, we want non-Christians to come because they're spiritually hungry, and we want real Christians to come. Nominal Christians are not who we're trying to get to come. That's a more complicated thing we're going to deal with in just relationships. Uh, the spiritually dead, we have to know, can respond to natural calls for community. They can like a church basketball league. They're not going to like it when you preach the gospel. That in and of itself is no evidence of the life of the spirit in them, of reconciliation with God. This is why Paul exhorts the Corinthians over in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. I don't know about you, but I think a lot of Baptists cannot understand those words. What on earth could that mean? I made a decision. I remember. I know I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. That's done. Well, I certainly believe in once saved, always saved. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. I do also believe the scriptures are clear that we can deceive ourselves. We think we are the world experts on ourselves, and we are not. No, if you're married, your spouse knows you in some ways better than you know yourself. It's just the truth. You know, the, the church around us, the people we know well, if they're Christians, they're going to know truths about us that we ourselves dimly grasp. That, that's just the way it is. So Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says here in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Brother Pastor, would the people in your church understand what these words mean? Would they understand why possessing godly qualities in increasing measure would help to make your calling and election sure, as Peter teaches in 2 Peter chapter 1? When you get this right, friends, there is a, a humble joy, a, a sharpness of God's grace, and a childlike reliance on Him that can increasingly mark your congregation and make it an absolute joy to the neighborhood and the town that you're in. So, 
Think of those people that you've baptized in the last year. Get somebody in mind. I'm waiting long enough for you to think of a specific person. Have you taught them these five things? If I were to meet them tonight and ask them some simple questions, not in preacher language, but just very simple questions, would they clearly know these five things to be true? Do they believe them? Do they believe that God's judgment is coming? Do they believe that they naturally should be judged by God? Do they know and believe that their only hope is Jesus Christ? Do they understand that Christ's salvation of us is not limited to this life? And do they know and believe that we can deceive ourselves and others about our relationship with God? You know where you need to press. Maybe you need to reintroduce those hymns on the afterlife. You know, we used to sing about heaven. In our church, we sing a good bit about heaven in the afterlife. I can't use modern hymnals for that very well. We'll have 10 hymns maybe in a modern hymnal. So I go back to 19th century hymnals where they had hundreds of hymns on the afterlife and on heaven. Just go find some. Start singing about our hope of heaven. Reminds us this world is not our home. It's a great thing to put in, in perspective. Now, brother pastors, if we are off in any of these ways it can result in lots of false professions because false teachers create false converts. And you know what false converts do? They hire false teachers. Look at the letter to Jude or of Jude. There's a kind of symbiotic relationship there. The the Lord Jesus says this is one of the problems in the church at Thyatira. If you read Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 to 24, they tolerated false teachers who in turn misled them. So, brother pastor, if you want to make sure that your successor does not preach the gospel, just admit lots of people in the membership who aren't truly converted. That'll take care of it. There'll be no godly future for your church unless God in his amazing grace completely sends a reformation. If you want to make sure your successor preaches the gospel, you be careful about who you admit into membership this coming Sunday. Remember what 1 Timothy 4.16 says. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul exhorts Timothy to watch his doctrine closely for the sake of the souls of those who hear him. But he also exhorts him to watch his life clearly. And this is where I go into the second half of my message. But I feel I've taken so long on the first half of my message that I probably shouldn't go into the second half of my message. That we'll all be blessed by just leaving it at the doctrine. And then you can work out the life yourself. Brother Holmes, do you have any wisdom for me? We're Baptists, we can take a vote. I'll try to do a a shorter version of these errors of life, but if you need to go, you just go right ahead and go, all right? You don't feel bad about it, all right? I went off my notes enough in the first half, and I trust you were blessed by it, but I'm making some compromises right now. All right. Um, Let me just tell you briefly three common errors about life uh, that happen in our churches or that are in danger of happening. Error number one is to present a church without holiness. But of course that lies about God. That lies about what he's like. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But we are too prone to deceive ourselves about our need for holiness. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the next chapter after the one I read, Paul lists out sins that perhaps the Corinthians thought they could continue and still inherit the kingdom of God, but Paul warns them that that simple idea is just deception. They cannot continue those sins and inherit the kingdom of God. That's why we have the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. That's, those are given for us to take up and examine ourselves and see our own lives. And that's why in the local church we need to wake up from self-deception. When left to ourselves in our own spiritual slumber, that would be our undoing forever. Like this man in 1 Corinthians 5, if he were never confronted. How tempting is it to present our church as affirming and tolerating of all sins, even those people who do not repent of sins. 
But the truth is there is a wonderful beauty and health and freedom in holiness as God gives us the new birth. His spirit helps us to begin to live the lives that we were literally made to live. Yeah, go off my notes another story again. So I was talking to this woman who was an agnostic. I met her at a dinner party three doors down from our house. And we, she was brought up as an agnostic on Capitol Hill. Never, never been a Christian, never been around Christians particularly. She was shocked that I was a Christian. Uh, so we started talking, and, and she wanted to study the gospel. So we studied through Mark's gospel. Now she, I'm a he. So we met at the church office during office hours, first thing on Tuesday morning. And as we went through at this one point, she came to me this one morning after we'd had maybe four or five studies. And the folks of our study that day was sinfulness of man. And she was just uh, undone. Because she said, she'd been, she was a journalist, and she was working on this very long article on, on a man who had lived an utterly terrible life. And she had been doing investigation into this serial pederastry uh, of this, I think he was a Nobel laureate. I mean, it's just a tar- terrible story. And she was finding it so hard emotionally to work on. But she said, my worldview had never really equipped me to understand that. He said in the, she said, in the family I was brought up in, we were taught never to say the word wrong. And she was born two blocks, 70 years ago, two blocks from where I live right now on Capitol Hill. Welcome to Capitol Hill, friends. That's how her family had brought her up back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, never to use the word wrong. She said, so when I'm working on this story, I'm just churned up inside because I know something's off, but I don't know how to, how to talk about it, how to think about it. She said, but then I've been reading the Gospel of Mark, and I understand there is such a thing as sin. There is such a thing as, and then she says the word, wrong, and she starts to cry. And that's when she tells me, I was brought up never to say that word. Friends, when when we talk about this, when we're clear that there is such a thing as sin, we are giving our secular friends the missing puzzle piece to be able to figure out Las Vegas shootings. We're helping them to understand, oh, that's why this feels so terrible. It's not weird. It's terrible. It's not just, oh, that was something crazy that happened. No, it was something evil. We have the vocabulary to explain that and understand that in a more humane sense. A local church should be a whole community in which having become morally visible to each other, we then begin to reflect God's character more and more. And so are changed more and more into his likeness. It's also an error, number two, to present a church living with no suffering. I've already kind of talked about that. Health and wealth preachers are false teachers. I think we might do the same thing in a more mild way in some of our sermons. Brother preacher, watch very carefully what you say, how you describe, what you sing in your services about the Christian life. I love the question Carl Truman asked several years ago in an excellent article entitled, What Do Miserable Christians Sing? what Carl was doing was showing the difference between our praise songs today and the Psalms of David. Psalms of David are are wonderfully realistic about the very hard things in life. So I don't know about your church, but I got people turning up on Sunday morning who are having a terrible time with a member of their family, are discouraged about their own health, they just lost their job. Uh, It's not they hate God, it's just that they don't understand where on earth God is and all the hard things in their lives. So if all we ever give people of Christianity is kind of a happy dance. Oh, it's great being a Christian. It's always wonderful. It's just happy, happy, happy. That's nothing like what's in the Bible. Jesus died on a cross. Now, there's a depth and a richness that, yes, it's all worth it. It's good. We'll sing his praises forever. But friends, the Christian religion pulls the full palette of colors to paint the truth. And we don't need to, to be concerned about minor keys and times of silence and darker hues because that represents very real parts of not just the human experience, but of Christians' experience in a fallen world. Our churches need to be careful not to present life with no suffering. So, will it be God's will for all of us to suffer? Well, if you want to get a lot of fake Christians in your church, just tell them that there's a free gift that entails no self-sacrifice, and that trouble and cross-bearing are only for those super saints who choose to be missionaries. Tell them that there can be saving faith 
without repentance. The truth, however, is that there is no cross, then there is no crown. Jesus taught us that in this world you will have trouble. That's not some theologian somewhere. That's Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. In this world you will have trouble. John 16, 33. He told those who were considering following him, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So, brother or sister, Jesus gives you no promise you can lose those 50 pounds. He gives you no promise the doctor's report will be good. He gives you no promise that job will not end. He's not about those kind of promises. He's about your eternal soul. That because God is good and you are not is in danger of eternal hellfire. And he has actually provided a way of escape. And with that a life marked by the fruit of his spirit. Friends, what wonderful reality can be found in our churches. What What truth and goodness when we are both frankly and realistically acknowledging the fallenness and darkness of our own hearts and of the world and oppose this darkness with God's strength. And I think we also have to say it's an error, number three, to present a church without love. John teaches, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's why he can say anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Light of love is a distinguishing mark of those who are truly converted. Friends, have you ever experienced life in a Christian congregation which is suffused with love, where care is initiated and griefs are sympathized with and meals are cooked and rides are given and offenses are overlooked and shortcomings are not gossiped about? And appropriate affection is expressed, and help is offered, and forgiveness is extended, and joy is shared freely. One of the most striking needs our world has is churches full of true Christians who are truly giving themselves away to each other in love. The world celebrates cheap imitations and partial renditions of true love. Experiencing real love with authority and kindness and correction and self-sacrifice and wisdom is bracing. It is even shocking to people. True, many are repelled. But it's also true that by God's grace, many will be attracted by this message of the self-giving love of God in Christ. So, I hope it's clear to you that conversions, false conversions are so bad that we should regard them as the suicide of the local church. The last thing I want to share with you here in conclusion, I've got three points in my conclusion. Just trying to be honest with preachers. It's a few practical suggestions on how you can be a part of preventing this problem from happening or solving it if it's already happened in your church. Three simple encouragements. Encouragement number one. Always be evangelizing. And evangelize, as Spurgeon put it, steadily and well. I quote from Spurgeon's book, The Soul Winner. Great book to read. Remember our Savior's word, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels but cast the bad away. Do not number your fishes before they are broiled nor count your converts before you have tested and tried them. This process may make your work somewhat slow, but then, brethren, it will be sure. Do your work steadily and well, so that those who come after you may not have to say that it was far more trouble to them to clear the church of those who ought never to have been admitted than it was to you to admit them. Ask yourself what temptations you face to evangelize in such a way that false converts seem to be regularly created and in great proportion compared to the true converts. Be wary of the bigger is better culture of your church. Don't mistake a device of the enemy for the work of God. Greater numbers doesn't necessarily mean greater strength. The Roman Catholics and the Mormons have plenty of numbers. Number two, encouragement number two, always be shepherding sheep. Always be shepherding sheep. Recenter your thoughts as pastor on the individuals to be shepherded. 
exactly how this will look will depend on if your church is comprised of seven people or 17 people or 70 people or 700 people or 7,000 people. But remember that to each person whom you take into membership, you are telling them that they are giving good evidence that they are born again and that they are eternally fine. It is a big deal to take someone into membership in your church. That's a wonderful role we're called to have. Again, if I can turn to Mr. Spurgeon on this, and if you're ever in doubt of anything, just turn to Spurgeon. Spurgeon writes, I am occupied in my small way as Mr. Greatheart was employed in Bunyan's day. I do not compare myself with that champion, but I'm in the same line of business. I'm engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven, and I have with me at the present time dear old Father Honest. I'm glad he's still alive and active. And there is Christiana, and there are her children. It is my business as best I can to kill dragons and cut off giants' heads and lead on the timid and trembling. I'm often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have the heartache for them. But by God's grace and your kind and generous help in looking after one another, I hope we shall all travel safely to the river's edge. Oh, how many have I had to part with there. I have stood on the brink, and I have heard them singing in the midst of the stream, and I have almost seen the shining ones lead them up the hill and through the gates into the celestial city. This, by the way, is why membership and discipline are so important. If you are reforming a church, if you're a younger pastor here, please do not merely clean the rolls to get more accurate numbers. Who cares about the numbers? Care about those individuals. If you have 250 people who never show up, don't talk to one of your nine marks friends and say, hey, we now have the same number of people who are members that we have attending by just like having some accounting, you know, wave of the hand. Ah, we voted them out. Well, friends, your church told those 250 people they would be fine throughout all eternity. I think you owe them a phone call or an email. Try to follow up with them. Find out what's going on with them. Remember that each one of those numbers is an individual made in the image of God that your church has told is reconciled with God now and forever. You need to see that as a special field of responsibility for you. For me, I'm reminded of this by personal evangelism, by sharing testimonies, by membership interviews by praying. We have a membership directory. So I don't understand myself to be eternally accountable for you all, but I do for these thousand people right here, the members of the Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I have this little membership directory. So my most important book is my Bible. My second most important book is my membership directory. These are the people, according to Hebrews 13, I will give account to God for. So I try to pray through, I pray through this morning, two pages. I'll pray through two pages every day. So every month I'm praying through the whole thing. We encourage all the elders in our church to do that, all the members of our church to do that. Everybody gets a copy of the directory. We update it all the time, constantly. This is not Olin Mills, nice family portraits to sell to us. No, these are cruddy little black and white pictures, you know. That, but you can recognize who it is, and that's just good enough for praying for it, you know. So nobody's making any money off this. This is just a pastoral tool and a way to create fellowship in the church. Encouragement number three, always remember the account that you are to give to God. One great accountability that we have, the greatest of all, is the accountability we have to God. And that helps us make sense of everything when we remember the great plan that God has and the crucial role the church has in that plan. One of my goals in ministry, apparently, is to quote John Brown in his letter of pastoral counsels to one of his students, newly ordained over a small congregation, as much as possible before I die. I use this quotation all the time. He wrote, to this young man who'd been a student who was now pastoring, beginning his pastorate at a very small church. The older man, John Brown, writes to him, I know the vanity of your heart, that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. Back to 1 Timothy 4.16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Did you notice? He mentioned yourself. We preachers can be lost. We preachers can be unconverted. Perhaps you've heard of Gilbert Tennant's famous message, preached in 1740, called The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry. Spurgeon said, 
God never saved any man for being a preacher. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Lord God, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. We pray that you would make your word clear and plain to each person here tonight. Lord, if there are people who don't know you, we pray you'd make the gospel clear and sweet. We pray you'd cause them to be unsettled with their not knowing you. In your kindness, cause an unrest. Let them not rest, Lord, until they've come to close with Christ. Father, for the pastors here tonight, we pray you give us a clarity on what your word teaches about conversion and the importance of it. Lord, pray that we would understand that and that we would work carefully to not misrepresent conversion and so unintentionally distort your church that you have died for, Lord, the local churches here that represent the Lord Jesus in these communities. Oh God, have mercy upon us. Pour out your Holy Spirit. We ask for your glory and our good in Jesus' name.